0: Our second reading picks up where the uh, first reading left off, uh, Numbers chapter 27. I'm going to read uh, verses 12 through 23. Hear the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go up w- on one of the mountains in the desert east of the Jordan River. There you will see the land that I am giving to the Israelites. After you have seen this land, you will die like your brother Aaron. Remember when the people became angry at the waters in the desert of Zin? Both you and Aaron refused to obey my command. You did not honor me and show the people that I am holy. This was at the waters of Meribah near Kadesh in the desert of Zin. Moses said to the Lord, Lord, you are the God who knows what people are thinking. I pray that you will choose a leader for these people. I pray that you will choose a leader who will lead them out of this land and bring them into the new land. Then your people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Joshua, son of Nun, is very wise. You will place your hand on him and make him the new leader. Tell him to stand before Eleazar, the priest, and all the people. Then make him the new leader. Show the people that you are making him leader. Then all the people will obey him. If Joshua needs to make a decision, he will go to Eleazar, the priest. Eleazar will use the Urim to learn the Lord's answer. Then Joshua and all the Israelites will do the things God says. If he says, go to war... They will go to war. If he says, go home, they will go home. (coughs) Moses obeyed the Lord. Moses told Joshua to stand before Eleazar, the priest, and all the Israelites. Then Moses put his hands on him to show that he was the new leader. He did this just as the Lord told him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, you have called us here this morning because we are your people and because you have your hand on us, because you have a plan for us. We thank you for the saints who are gathered here in this sanctuary. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be alive and present with us this day. Father God, we thank you for the testimony of the saints who have gone before us. We thank you for this report regarding the transfer of the authority from Moses to Joshua. We thank you for uh, the stories of the people uh, in their journey through the wilderness. We thank you also for the saints in more recent time. We thank you for the memory of Christine Boney, whose birthday we remember today. Lord God, you are a good God, and you bless us in each day of our lives, in each chapter of our journey. We thank you that you are a God who has the long view, that you are saving for yourself, a separated people, a church who will be a nation of priests for you. And you are justifying and sanctifying the saints that you have called to yourself. We thank you that you are a merciful God, that you continue to work in our lives week after week. We thank you that you do not give up on us when we mess up. We thank you that you are a God who can take us through. Father God, as we dig into your word this morning, I pray that we would see your character. I pray as well that we would see ourselves and see a mirror of who we are in your word. We thank you that you have caused your word to be preserved through all of these centuries. We thank you that your word is as true today as the day that it was written. And we ask that you would be Uh, alive here in this sanctuary this morning by the power of your spirit giving us the ability to receive and to respond to uh, what your holy spirit has caused to be written these things we pray in jesus name amen So this morning I want to preach uh, three little sermons rather than one full-size sermon. Maybe it'll be a sermon and a half. We'll see. Okay, so first I want to address uh, an issue that was raised in Numbers chapter 25. I think that's taking us back about three weeks. Uh, And second, I want to take a quick uh, look at the decision that God makes regarding the property of Salaphahad's daughters. And third, I want to mention to you a great book that I'm reading. It's a book about a guy whose wife comes home one day and asks him for a divorce. And trust me, it's a hilarious book. So let's begin with Numbers chapter 25. In Numbers 25, we saw the Israelites camped near Acacia, and the Israelites... Well, the men, at least, start fooling around with the Moabite women. And they start fooling around with the Moabite God, who is called Baal. In fact, this is the first time that the Israelites start fooling around with Baal. And it's a problem that they're going to have over a long period of time. And in the middle of chapter 25, there is the story of Zimri, an Israelite man, and Cosby, a Moabite woman who go into a tent to do what they shouldn't be doing, and Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, takes up his spear, and he kills both of them while they're lying together. The Bible tells us that just as soon as Phineas killed the illicit couple, a plague that had wiped out 24,000 Israelites, a plague roughly three times more deadly than the COVID epidemic, that plague came abruptly to an end the Bible tells us that Phineas, quote, was zealous for the honor of his God and that he made atonement for the Israelites. One of our elders pulled me aside after that sermon and said, Pastor, I'm a little worried that some zealous person might think that it is their job to kill fornicators and idolaters. Being zealous, of course, is a good thing. But the Apostle Paul warns us about zeal without knowledge. Talking about well-intentioned but misguided people, Paul writes, I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but that their zeal is not based on knowledge. That's Romans 10, 2. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to add some knowledge to ourselves without dampening our zeal. So I'm going to begin bluntly, and then we'll add some finesse here's the blunt truth it is not your job to kill anyone if you say to me pastor i'm going to kill some idolaters and fornicators i will immediately call the police and have you arrested if you say to me pastor i think god is telling me to kill some idolaters and fornicators i will immediately call the police and have you committed to a mental hospital If I ever say something like let's go kill some idolaters and fornicators I give you permission to immediately call the police and have me arrested and thrown into the booby hatch. And, by the way, let me be clear that what applies to killing sinners also applies to doing any kind of injury to them, to beating them up, destroying their property defaming their reputation. The same principle applies in all cases. God does exact retribution for sin. In the end, every sin ever committed will be paid for. But you and I will not be the ones making people pay for their sins. Are we clear on that? Okay? Thank you. Thank you somebody was worried okay (laughs) so let me push on a little bit we're going to nuance this now why is it okay for phineas to do it but not for me why is phineas honored and rewarded by god for what he did but i would be dishonored and punished by god for doing the same thing There are two points to consider in answering this question. Point number one has to do with the nature of the state, the constituted government. And the point number two has to do with the nature of atonement. Okay, so let's talk about point number one, the nature of the state or the constituted government. As the citizen of a state, as people who live under a constituted government, we do not have the right to kill or to injure people, even as a punishment for their sins, except in the case of self-defense. The right to punish evildoers belongs to the state alone alone. And not to any individual in this state. If a murderer is executed for his crime, if a thief is punished for his felony, it is the state alone that has that right to make the individual suffer. Twice, when Ava and I were living in Pittsburgh, we had cars stolen. In both cases, was it only two times? Well, there was a third time, but they couldn't get the thing started. Okay. Both times, the people uh, who stole our cars were people who simply didn't feel like taking the bus home. Okay, And they damaged our property, and they violated our sense of safety and security, and they caused all kinds of grief that we could scarcely afford. And my fleshly instinct was to settle the matter privately with a baseball bat. But part of living in a state, part of living under a constituted government is that I do not get to indulge my fleshly instincts in that way. Exacting retribution for those crimes belongs to the state alone. Now, the punk who stole the second-hand station wagon that we had been given so that we would have a car because we couldn't afford a car at that time, he was caught. And the funny thing is, he ran out of gas in that car while he was driving it away because we couldn't afford the gas either. And he, the gas can that he used to refill it was still in the car when we got it back. That plus his mixtape, which he left in the cassette deck. This was in the 20th century. Okay. Those of you who don't know what a mixtape is, you can talk to me afterward. We'll give you some history lesson. Phineas and the Israelites are citizens of a brand new state. They have been formed into a theocracy by the law that was given at Mount Sinai. And Phineas, as a Levite, was an officer of that state. He and his fellow Levites were responsible for maintaining the purity of the tabernacle compound. You remember back in Numbers chapter 3 that the Levites were camped. They were positioned around the tabernacle and they were armed with swords to strike down anyone who would violate the sanctity of the tabernacle. In Numbers chapter 25, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the crime of the two fornicators and idolaters happened in broad daylight the levites were at the tabernacle but nobody intervened they didn't step in to avert or to prevent the crime from happen happening and only phineas had the zeal the moral courage to do his job under the law phineas was not acting as a private citizen he was not a vigilante he was an officer acting under the constituted authority of the state what was exceptional in his case was that no one else acted everyone else was morally paralyzed people who had a responsibility looked the other way well we don't want to get involved and phineas is remembered because he did what he was supposed to do so point number one we are not permitted to exact retribution for sins or crimes privately or individually. That is the job of the state. And if you are an officer of the state, if you are a judge authorized to execute judgment on behalf of the state, then you need to do your job. But point number two, point number one has to do with the state. Point number two has to do with atonement. So let's talk about atonement a little bit. Numbers 25 13 tells us that phineas quote was zealous for the honor of god and made atonement for the israelites end quote what zimri and cosby were doing was not an isolated sin lots of israelite men were doing what zimri did zimri was having illicit sexual relations with a moabite woman connected with the temple of baal cosby was a priest S who mixed sex with the worship of a false god. Oh, and there was also a steak dinner involved. You would go to the temple of Baal, you would have sex with one of the women who worked there, you would offer a sacrifice to Baal, and then you enjoyed a steak dinner that men could really go for. If they had thrown in a football game, all of the Israelites would be Baal worshipers today. Zimri and Cosby were representatives of a larger, more generalized problem that had infected the Israelite camp. And one of the results was a plague from God which killed 24,000 Israelites. When Phineas killed Zimri and Cosby, we are told the plague ended abruptly. The killing of Zimri and Cosby somehow atoned for or paid for the sins of the community. What exactly that means, I can't say for sure. We do read in Hebrews 9.22 that without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sins. I don't know how that works. But what we do know is is that at the cross of Calvary, God provided a once for all time final blood sacrifice and atonement. And once Jesus offered his own blood to take away the sins of his people, no more blood sacrifices are needed. Okay? So there will never again be a killing to atone for sins anymore on this planet. That is done. That's the past. No more. We don't do this as Christians. Now, usually when people kill, they're not actually interested in atonement. They're interested in vengeance. But vengeance or revenge to use the modern world is actually not permitted. In the Bible, it's not permitted in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. In Deuteronomy 32:35, God says, "Vengeance is mine." That means that even under the Old Testament law, revenge was not permitted. Okay? Just because someone has done something to you, it is, you do not have a right to injure them in return. Okay? It's 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 not permissible. Okay? The same is true in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians at Rome, says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. When should we avenge ourselves? Never. Never avenge yourselves. And I need to say this because this needs to be said. A lot of times people talk about justice. We want justice. And what they really want is vengeance. We need to be very, very careful. That, that our calls for justice are not really calls for vengeance. If anyone ever had a reason to desire revenge, it would have been the Christians living in Rome. Paul writes to them, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. These Christians living in Rome were fed to lions. They were sawed in two. They were stuck up on poles and lit so that the town could be illuminated by the fires of their body. And Paul says to these people, never avenge yourselves. All right, that's enough about chapter 25. Let's talk about 27 a little bit. We're going to have to visit 27 next week as well. Where's Anthony? Thank you for putting up with all those Hebrew names. I'm really sorry. Okay. Better you than me. All right, so I'm going to talk about Zelophehad's daughters. Okay, so Zelophehad died in the wilderness. He had been rescued out of Egypt by the mighty outstretched arm of the Lord. He had witnessed the parting of the Red Sea. He had been present at Mount Sinai when the the law of God was given to the Israelites. He had been sustained by manna that came out of heaven and by water that came out of a rock. But he was condemned to die in the wilderness because he was part of the generation that lacked the faith that they needed to enter the promised land. God had said to the Israelites, I'm giving you this land. And Zelophehad and all the others in his generation said, oh, the giants are so big. Can we go back to Egypt, please? Zelophehad was a descendant of Joseph, but we don't know much else about him. In fact, we wouldn't even know his name if it hadn't been for his five daughters. And by the way, did you notice that the name of one of the daughters is Noah? Did you know that Noah could be a woman's name? Okay, I want to think about that, those of you who are having a girl. Okay, Noah. These daughters come to Moses and ask for a share of the land that's going to be allocated. So they're still, they're not in the promised land yet, but there is this plan to allocate all of the territory uh, in the promised land amongst the different families, and they ask Moses, we, we want a share of the land. Moses isn't sure what to do. He asks God. God says, give them their father's share. Now, it would be a mistake to read this passage with modern eyes as if this were a decision for gender equality in land distribution. It's not. That's not what's going on here. Okay? For these agricultural people, their wealth was the land. And the economic system that is embedded in the Old Testament was designed to do two things. It was designed to prevent abject poverty or permanent poverty on the one side. And it was also designed to prevent the large accumulation of wealth into the hands of a few people on the other side. Now, if the law had been followed in Israel, and in fact it wasn't followed, every 70 years... Each family would start again with the same amount of land, with the same amount of wealth. And then maybe you would have some bad years with your crops and you'd have to sell some of your land. And if things were really bad, you might even have to sell yourself as a servant to another, uh, another Israelite to work on his farm. On the other hand maybe you had a good year with your crops and so you would buy some of your neighbors land or maybe you would hire some of their servants but in the 70th year in the year of jubilee as it was called each family would regain their original land and all the servants were set free and returned to the families this was designed To prevent any one family from becoming too rich or to prevent any one family from becoming too poor. That is a persistent economic theme throughout the Old Testament. The Old Testament law was designed to ensure that everyone, male and female, was taken care of. Under this law, sons inherited the land from the fathers. Daughters shared the land of their husbands. And if they, if they were married, and if they were single, they shared the land of their brothers. While the title to the land was in the hands of the men, all people, male and female, were taken care of within this system. So the five daughters of Zelophehad would have had the share of the land of their husbands. They would have been taken care of. There was no issue here about them being destitute. The special ruling that the daughters had asked for does not solve the problem of how they're going to be taken care of because that problem didn't exist. What the special ruling uh, was designed to do was to allow the name of their father to carry on in the promised land. Here's what we read in verse 3 and 4 Our father had no sons. This means that our father's name will not continue. It is not fair that our father's name will not continue. His name will end because he had no sons. So we ask you to give some of the land that our father's brothers will get. Okay? So this is hard for us to understand, we as modern people. uh, But for ancient people, having your name live on after you was enormously important. And it was connected to the land. Remember, Abraham's complaint to God is, I'm incredibly rich, but I have no son to inherit my wealth, and I'm going to have to pass it on to my servant. What Abraham wanted more than anything was to have a son to carry on his name. For the children of Israel who came out of Egypt but were condemned to die in the wilderness, they had this consolation. Their name would live on after them in the promised land. They're not going to be there to see it, But there was a comfort in knowing that their name would not be wiped out. Their sons were for them in some way a living monument, the closest thing that I think they understood to immortality at that time. Zelophehad paid the price that all of the children of Israel paid who were not permitted to enter the promised land. But because he had no sons, it looked as if he might have to pay an extra penalty as well, the penalty of having his name wiped out, and so the daughters plead on behalf of the father. This special ruling that God gives is not about the daughters, it's about the father who's already died. And I think it is also about how God's mercy trumps God's judgment. Salofah had paid the price for his refusal to trust God, along with his whole generation. But there was mercy and there was hope in the next generation. While the father was chastised, his children and his legacy were not crushed or destroyed or wiped out. Now, some of us have had wonderful parents, and they raised us in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord. And others of us have not. But to each generation, no matter what happened before, God offers his mercy. To each generation, no matter what the previous generation did, God offers them a place in the promised land. The book of Numbers and other parts of the Old Testament contains lists of names of people and the names are attached to certain places that they lived and all of this is a foreshadowing of what the promised land points to which is the eternal kingdom of God in the new Jerusalem where all the redeemed of the Lord will live with God forever. And the Bible also talks about the names of the citizens of the kingdom of God. We're told that their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In Revelation chapter 21, we have a description of the final home of the church. We read, the peoples of the world will walk by the light given by the Lamb. The rulers of the earth will bring their glory into the city. The city's gates will never close on any day because there is no night there. The greatness and the honor of the nations will be brought to this city. Nothing unclean will ever enter this city. No one who does shameful things or tells lies will ever enter the city. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter the city. Now the book of Numbers tells the story of the journey of the people of God from Egypt to the promised land. And it foreshadows our journey from bondage to sin to a life with God in New Jerusalem. And the special ruling on behalf of Zelophehad was that while he had failed in his own way... His name would not be blotted out. His legacy would find a home in a place that God was preparing for his people. This is an encouragement to us. We are not trapped by what happened in our past. God's mercy trumps God's judgment, and God provides a way to gather his people to himself. You know, I didn't preach last week. And I can't... You've got to practice, right? I should have been practicing when I was away. My, my voice is just about to give out. Some of you are like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> Sermon number three. You ready? <laughs> All right. So I want to close on a very different note. I want to talk about a book written by a guy whose wife comes home one day and asks for a divorce. Now, I read a lot of books. This, here's the book right here. I read a lot of books. I buy a lot of books. Just to give you an idea of how many books uh, I buy, <clears throat> today is the 239th day of the year. Thus far, in 2023, I have acquired 140 books. Okay, so that's one book every 1.7 days. Now, I need to tell you that I rarely buy a new book. I get most of my books at thrift stores and I use bookshops. Of the 140 books that I acquired this year, only 10 are new. This is, this is my newest of my new, all right? I picked it up at Barnes & Noble. Mia and I had gone to Barnes & Noble to get some stuff last week. And it's called How to Stay Married... The most insane love story ever told, and it's by a fellow named Harrison Scott Key. Does anybody know Harrison Scott Key? I, I had never met this guy before either. He's got a number of books out there. It's hilarious. Okay, this is a hilarious book, and I want to recommend it to you. Whether you're married or not, because it's about how we stay married, even though we are big fat jerks, And even though we're married to big fat jerks. And maybe you think, well, I don't care about that. My marriage is fine. Or I'm not interested in being married. I think this is a book for everyone because marriage, in fact, is just a special case, a more intense version of every human relationship we have. Like every human relationship, marriage is built on two things, love and trust. And this man's wife comes home one day and tells him that she doesn't love him anymore, that she loves someone else. And this man has to come to terms with the fact that his wife has betrayed his trust. Everything that he thought was true turns out that it was a lie. Not only does he lose his future that he had imagined with his wife, but he loses his past because the past he thought he had, once the truth is revealed, is not the past that he really had. He's been a fool for a long time. Now the author's a very funny guy. He's a class clown, he makes his living writing funny things and traveling around the country entertaining large crowds. He is also a big fat guy with a droopy mustache. His wife's boyfriend calls him the walrus. And when the news breaks that when he's been at work or when he's been on the road, she's been canoodling with the neighbor, He's destroyed, gobsmacked, flabbergasted, caught by surprise, unprepared, and totally at a loss. But this man has the advantage of being a Christian. Raised in a Christian home, in church every Sunday, he goes to a Presbyterian church, and his wife, too, is a Christian. Raised in a church, homeschooled, in the Bible Belt South. The only problem is she hates her husband, which apparently he didn't know because he's a fat walrus and then he does know and so what's he going to do now our first instinct when we are betrayed our first instinct when the trust on which our life has been built is shattered our first instinct is to wallow in victimhood how can this happen to me How could she do this to me? I'm a good man, I'm a good provider, I'm a good father. We used to have so much fun together. And the second instinct is to strike out in revenge. We've been hurt, and so let's dish out some hurt in return. A little tit-for-tat vengeance. We call it justice, or comeuppance, since as Christians we know that vengeance belongs to God alone. But those first two instincts... Fleshly instincts, understandable instincts, only lead to death and disillusion, which in the heat of the moment and the pain of the crisis can actually seem like good outcomes. Fortunately for this man, for Harrison, this man has. A friend in a Bible study who has another idea, Jimbo is his name, and Jimbo says to Harrison, if the marriage is going to recover, then the betrayed spouse has to own their part in it. I've seen this again and again in pastoral counseling. Someone comes to me, they've been mistreated by someone they've trusted, they can't believe that person could have done what they did, and they play the victim, and they play the Avenger, but if they really want to make something good happen, they have to get to the point where they're willing to say, okay, what's my part in this problem? How did I contribute to this trouble? And then the change begins to happen. That doesn't mean that the person who hurt us is not also at fault, but our job is not to fix the other person. Our job is not to be the judge and the jury for the other person. We have an obligation to examine ourselves, to root out the sin in our hearts. When we stand before the judge one day, he will not ask us about anyone else. When we stand before the judge one day, he's going to ask us about ourselves and he's not going to want to hear the kind of lame excuses that our first parents offered. Oh, the woman, she gave it to me. Oh, the 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 serpent, he he fooled me. We have to answer for ourselves, And if we want to have healing in our relationships at work and in church and in our communities and our families, then we have to have our eyes on the condition of our own hearts. And so this man, this funny man, this big fat walrus with his droopy mustache, he begins an alphabetical listing of why he's not such a great guy. It's hilarious. So uh, this book, by the way, is R-rated. So those of you who are underage, I'm going to have to skip over some of these letters. But let's start with B. I brag. I brag, once boasting so proudly to Lauren, that's his wife, about the moral superiority of owning a flip phone that she assaulted me with a Yankee candle. G. Gifts. I am terrible at receiving gifts. I cannot hide disappointment. One birthday, Lauren presented me with a new porch swing. I sat down, determined that the angle was all wrong, stood up and asked her to return it. What the heck is wrong with me? I. I interrupt. I interrupt others because I am blessed with a gift for telling more interesting stories than the ones currently being told to me. And which I cannot wait to tell because I want to communicate to the person that while he or she is interesting, I once met Jim from the office. S, selfish. You're selfish, Lauren said to me often as, When I tried to stop at Wendy's for a spicy chicken sandwich while she was in the passenger seat in labor with our third child. (laughs) V. Vindictive. I can be vindictive. I have often behaved as the Lord's vice president for minor reprisal operations. Cut me off on the interstate. I will teach you a lesson that will get both of us killed. I have been known to throw rocks at cars that drive past my home at unsafe speeds because I hope to one day be shot by a motorist. Now one of the things that makes the Bible so great is that it tells the unvarnished truth. If the Bible were a work of fiction, if the Bible were merely legend, then the heroes would not be as flawed as they are. Even the big guys like David and Moses are only saved by the grace of God, not by their own righteousness. How to Stay Married is also a great book because in it, the author manages to tell the unvarnished truth about himself. It's tragic... But it's hilarious. In one chapter, he rewrites the story of Job in King James English as the tale of a suburban Christian dad whose wife has dumped him and he's left to take care of his three daughters and an out of control dog. There are no easy answers, just honest wrestling with the big questions and all of it under the umbrella truth that God is in control, that God is God and that God is good. I recommend this book to those of you who are married and those of you who are not. Let us pray. Father God, for your goodness we give you thanks, and for your faithfulness to your people we give you thanks. We thank you that your mercy is sovereign that you choose to be merciful to us even though we don't deserve it. And Lord God, we thank you for that because if that were not true, we would have no hope. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous, not one of us. And yet, you have placed your affections upon us. You have placed your mark upon us. You have claimed us as your own. You have grafted us into the body of christ you have built us up into a holy priesthood you have done this we've just been along for the ride lord god i pray that you would allow us to see the truth of your mercy in our lives and i pray that as we see your mercy in our lives we might be more inclined to extend mercy to others Father, we are able to love you only because you loved us first and we are able to love our brothers only because we love you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach us to love you more so that we can love one another better. Lord, we ask that you would be honored and glorified in our lives. We pray that we would be people who are Christians, not just in name but in deed. I pray that when... People see us, they would identify us as Christians. That They would say, that person is strange, he must be a Christian. Father God, we ask that you would be honored and glorified. I pray that you would guard our tongues so that we would not speak in a way that would bring you dishonor. I pray that you would guard our will so we would not do the things that would bring you dishonor. I pray that we would live in the anticipation of your imminent return. Lord Jesus, you promised that you would come back and gather your church. Come quickly. Father God, we ask that you would wet our appetite for eternity. I pray that you would disentangle us from this world that is passing away. You said that if we love this world, we can't love you. And so we pray that... You would move our affections away from these things that are dying and passing away, and they might be attached to things that are permanent, permanently true and permanently beautiful. And Lord, because we are attached to you, that we can then live well in this world. Father God, you are our maker. Lord Jesus, you are our redeemer. Holy Spirit, you are the one who has given us life and new life. And so we honor you and we worship you this day. Take our lives, this we pray in Jesus' name.